0: One of the greatest fools in the Bible, and perhaps through all of history, is King Belshazzar of Babylon. If you read his story, he was holding a great feast, an orgiastic festival in Babylon, blaspheming the name of the Lord with the cups that had been stolen from the temple, praising the gods of gold and silver. And you know the story the hand of God came in and wrote on the wall. And he panicked as one would in that situation. And he calls Daniel, who comes in and prophesies, this means your kingdom has been weighed in the balance and found wanting. The Persians are going to take over your kingdom. And when Belshazzar found out what that meant, he gave Daniel the reward he had promised. He gave him a robe and he gave him a title. And uh, then they resumed the party. He found out what what the prophecy meant and did nothing with it. And that very night, if you know your history, the Persians stole into the city. They took it over without a fight, and Belshazzar's own advisors killed him so that they could hand over the city to King Darius rather than have to face the inevitable sack of the city. You can read that story in Daniel chapter 5 if you like. But it's remarkable that he was given a prophecy of what was coming and was content merely to understand it and not to do anything about it. And that's going to transition into what we're talking about today. Paul, in Romans chapter 13, is going to give us instructions in light of the Lord Jesus' impending return. Because Christ is coming back, Paul is going to give us instruction. And what is so fascinating to me is if you knew that the end was coming, the instruction that Paul gives is maybe not the lesson you would think. And maybe not the one you've even heard. He's going to say, because Jesus is coming back soon, double down on love. Love. Love is, is the foundational commandment of being a Christian, isn't it? But it's, it's too bad that as Christians, we very often will say, yes, yes, we know we need to love. But we're living in very dark times and very serious days. And we'll get back to love. But right now we've got more important things to do. But love is not a sunny day commandment for a Christian. It is the constant, active aspiration of anybody who belongs to Christ Jesus, that we are to pursue and put on love, especially as we experience days of crisis and conflict. You know, it seems every generation, and if you read history like I love to do, you'll read that everybody thought theirs was the end of all days. And they all used to say things like, we don't have time for love and and patience right now. These are not days for kindness. These are days for revolution or whatever the, the issue happened to be of the day. But Paul tells us, because the end of the world is near, love each other. And of course, after experiencing God's own love in Christ Jesus poured out upon us through the Holy Spirit, is there anything else we really can do? So let's read verses 8 through 10. We'll do uh, half and half of the passage today, starting with verses 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. We're still in this application portion of the book of Romans. And the last thing we were talking about was government. And how Christians are to be good citizens and submit to the governing authorities. And the last thing he talked about, if you look back at verse 7, was we are to pay to all what is owed them. Taxes, revenue, we talked about that can mean tribute, as in to a country that has conquered you. Respect to whom it's owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And then in verse 8, he continues that, but he's going to pivot into a new subject when he says, Owe no one anything, and this can be applied, and I think it, it's appropriate to apply it. That you know, Christians, as the Old Testament teaches, us are to, are to keep short accounts with people. You know, Proverbs 22:7, 7, the famous Dave Ramsey verse, right? The borrower is slave to the lender. And there are those that want to make way more out of this verse than is necessary. There's a, a story that was shared with me where um, somebody was at a pastor's conference, Calvary Chapel pastor's conference, and kind of was holding court. You know, people will do that sometimes, They like got lunch. They're just kind of preaching to a bunch of preachers, and they're, uh, he's saying, you know, the Bible says, owe no one anything, and that's why you should never have debt, and you never have a credit card, and churches should never have mortgages, and all the rest. And Pastor Chuck Smith, who is the founder of Calvary Chapel, kind of walks over and sits down and is listening. And he goes, ah, oh, Pastor Chuck, so glad you're here. Would you please tell everyone that I'm right and that we should never be in debt and churches should never have mortgages and all the rest of it? And Pastor Chuck, have you ever listened to him? Just kind of this real kind of quiet, mild-mannered guy. And he goes, well, the way I see it, if you make your payments, you don't owe anyone anything. <laughs> so there is that. I'm glad that wasn't me that that happened to. I'll just say that. But I don't think that's the primary lesson that Paul is getting at here. Although you can certainly learn that and you ought to be careful not to get yourself into any kind of damaging debt. But that's not the lesson for today. The more important thing that he's getting at here is that we do owe everyone something. He says, don't don't get in deep debt if you can help it. Although you do have an obligation to everybody to love them. Paul's going to tell us to love with two different motivations in this passage today. And the first one is we have an obligation to our fellow man, especially to our fellow Christian, to love each other. And he says, for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. For all these commandments are summed up in love your neighbor as yourself. So there's a great little pivot, and, and it's not a pun, but it's a, it's a clever way of writing this here in verse 8, because verses 1 through 7 are all about obeying the law, meaning the laws of men. And so Paul says, if you love each other, you will fulfill the law. And, and you could do that lowercase l, the social laws that are passed by Congress or the governor or whatever. But then he also pivots to talk about the capital L law, which is the law of Moses. I'm just trying to point out some of the cleverness of Paul's writing here. And we've seen several times, especially in chapter 12 and 13, that a lot of the things that Paul says seem to be either directly or indirectly quoting or alluding to what Jesus said, which shouldn't be that surprising to you or me. But there are some that believe that, of course, the New Testament was written much later and Paul was an innovator and went well beyond Jesus. And they seem to find it fascinating that Paul would have known some of the things that Jesus said. I don't know why that's so fascinating. The early church knew Jesus a little bit. But look at what he says. Love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 22. This is a famous passage. Just about everybody knows this one. Matthew twenty-two thirty-five 35 through 40. When Jesus was being interrogated by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they're trying to find something to trip him up with. One of them, a lawyer. So if you want somebody to catch, them, catch someone in their words, you got to get a lawyer, right? A lawyer asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? There's an amazing intertestamental body of literature where all the Hebrew scholars would debate over what is the most important commandment. So he's kind of bringing Jesus into the conversation of the day. But Jesus doesn't hesitate. He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Do you see how he speaks with authority, which blew their mind in that day? And a second, so following right on the heels of that first commandment, is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says in verse 40, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Your whole Old Testament can be summed up in love God and love people. Jesus said that. He quotes first from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, which is the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God. And it goes on, you shall teach these things diligently to your children. That's the number one commandment. Love the Lord your God. And then the second, he's quoting from Leviticus 19.18. We just discussed this on Wednesday nights, not long ago. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul agrees with that here. So he's making the same point with the same scripture, which is why we say Paul probably has what Jesus said in mind here when he writes this passage. Also in Galatians 5.14, Paul says, all the commandments are filled up in one word, which is love. James two verse eight, he quotes from Leviticus 19.18 also, and calls the commandment to love the royal law, the kingly law. Law is to love each other. And Paul says that love fulfills the Old Testament law. We've gone into this at great length in the book of Romans and in the book of Leviticus and before. So I'll just state this. The Old Testament law of Moses was for a previous time and a different dispensation. We as Christians are not under the Old Testament law anymore. We saw this in Romans 6. You are not under law, but under what? Grace. How much of the law? None of it. It's all grace. It's not a little bit of law and a lot of grace. It's all grace. And you say, well, wait a minute. If we do that, then we're going to break all these commandments. And Paul goes, no, you won't. Because if you're in the grace of God, you're going to love people. And if you love God and love people, he goes, what do you need the law for? If you're doing that, you're already doing everything the law commands. It was all fulfilled in Christ Jesus. If you have put your faith in Christ and the heavenly father has filled you up with the Holy Spirit and you start walking in that commandment to love people, you don't need somebody to tell you what to do. You won't sin if you do that. That's Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the spirit is, what's the first one? Love. If God is in your life, you're going to love people. And he explains by giving some examples here. He pulls out in verse 9, four of the Ten Commandments. And there's a, I read way too many articles and things about why these four? It's like, why, why not these four? <laughs> He's quoting, of course, the Ten Commandments are from Exodus chapter 20. You can go back and read them if you like. And he quotes from Leviticus 19, 18 again to demonstrate you can put up all these 10 commandments and say, what about adultery? What about coveting? What about murder? He goes, if you love, you're not going to do any of that. That true agape, selfless, Christian, godly love, which Paul, of course, defines for us in 1 Corinthians 13. If you've never read that, but this sounds familiar, you've probably seen A Walk to Remember. They didn't make that up. It came from the Bible. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And you maybe memorized that when you were growing up in a different translation, but I love reading passages like that in different translations because we hear them differently and it catches our attention a little bit. Love does not insist on its own way. We go, oops, (laughs) did that yesterday. Now think about that. I've, lo- I've loved the application that I've heard before. It says, can you take your name and replace the word love with your name in that passage and have it make sense? Tyler is patient and kind. Tyler does not envy or boast. So like, can you do that and, and keep a straight face with your own name? You can do it with Jesus, can't you? Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way. He's not irritable or resentful. He doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. And so, knowing all that, does that kind of person need the Ten Commandments? They don't, because they're already keeping them all. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says the law was given for the unjust The law, the Old Testament law that sometimes we have such an obsession with as New Testament believers and want to try to bring it over and make this the standard again, Paul says that wasn't written for spirit-filled, grace-given, forgiven Christians. It was written for people that don't think they're sinners. It's to hold up a standard and say, now keep this, and then you realize you can't. So the law is not for the just, but for the unjust. And if you've been justified, as we read about in Romans, then it's not for you. So let's go through these. Is love going to commit adultery? I I don't think so. No, because love is faithful. Love keeps its word. Love keeps the vow that was made. It keeps the vow. It would never hurt that person. Love doesn't consider about itself and say, but I really want to be with this other person. Love considers your wife or your husband and says, what would this do to them if I did this? How would they feel? How would they respond if they knew? That's love. You're considering the other person. You might be all riled up and ready to go with somebody else. You've got some crush that came up when, in your 40s or 50s. But you know what? Love says, I don't care about that. I'm going to deny that. I'm going to say no to that because I love him. Because I love her. Love is not going to commit adultery. Is love going to murder? I'm pretty obvious, I would think, Right? Love is kind. Love recognizes that that person that you're you're holding the gun to or that you've got the knife, that, that, that person is made in God's image. And God made them and Jesus died for them and the Holy Spirit is actively working to draw them to salvation. And I'm going to end that story? I can't do that. Love gets angry perhaps, but love doesn't sin in its anger. Love doesn't see itself as so valuable and so lofty that it can end the life of another person. So, do you need to tell a loving, kind person, hey, don't forget not to murder today? (laughs) It's like, oh, goodness, I'm so glad you reminded me. I almost forgot. (laughs) Love, is love going to steal? Now, don't put me in some weird, extreme situation, like, what if the apocalypse happens and I don't have money for bread All right, well, first of all, God can provide manna from heaven. Second of all, we're not talking about that. I'm talking about day-to-day. Does love steal things? No, because love is thinking about that other person, saying, could I deprive them of that? If that thing is so good that I want it, could I take it away from somebody else? Could I steal that car? Could I do like what was done to me a while ago and open up the car and take the AirPods out because I wanted them so bad? It's like, oh, great, a pair of AirPods. Love says... That person probably really enjoys those, so I'm not going to deprive him of that. So you don't need to tell a loving person not to steal. They get it because they're just happy for the other person, which goes right into the fourth example he gives. Is love going to covet, which is kind of the precursor to murder and the precursor to theft and the precursor to adultery? No, because love rejoices in all things. Love sees somebody else where it's going good for them and is happy for them. Love doesn't covet the fact that they were passed up for promotion. Love doesn't covet another man's wife or husband. Love doesn't covet the car or whatever it is. They look at that and they say, I'm so happy for you. Have you ever known somebody that could be legitimately happy for you? Doesn't that make you feel good about yourself? Conversely, have you ever met somebody that if you're happy, they've got to find a way to put a pin in your balloon so that it pops and you're not quite so happy? Maybe you are that person. Please stop. Love that other person. Be, delight for them. You know, g- a good competition can be ruined if somebody's a bad sport, isn't it? It's like, we, we won, but, yeah, look at that guy rubbing it in somebody's face. Or this person, it's like flipping chairs over and throwing things and cursing people out. and We're losing the game, so we're going to start throwing hard fouls to hurt the other guy. It's like, you, you take all the joy out of it. Don't do that. Love doesn't covet. Now, Christians... We'll give negative moral instruction, as in don't do, right? And we're going to do that actually in a few minutes here. But the overarching moral lesson for Christians is a positive one, which is love your neighbor. How much? As yourself. The golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. How would you like that person to treat you? Do that for other people. That's love. Love your neighbor as yourself. And according to Paul, you owe that to your fellow man. You are obligated to do that. Oh no and anything except to love each other. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. And then we get cute like that other guy that talked to Jesus, right? Well, who's my neighbor? I mean, certainly not people that don't live outside my neighborhood or outside my city or outside my country or who voted differently or who root for a different team. They're not my neighbors, right? And Jesus goes, you're looking at it backwards. You are the walking neighbor. <laughs> you are the one looking to be a neighbor to somebody else. It's not passive as in who are my neighbors. It's active. Go out and look for chances to love people. Wouldn't it be nice if we all did that? I mean, I think it would, right? Right. If everybody loved each other enough to not commit adultery, if everybody loved each other to not murder or to not steal, if everyone loved each other to not even covet what wasn't theirs, so you start, Christian. That's why God sent you out, is to start living that way. Maybe that's how you got saved, is you saw somebody that truly loved you and truly loved other people. Maybe you wanted nothing to do with God, but you kept on hanging around him or her because you knew that they cared about you. I was a youth pastor. I, I ran into some of that. They, they thought they hated God. They thought they hated the church and they hated Christians, but they liked me. Well, I like you, man. It's like, yeah, Jesus makes me act this way. <laughs> and that's how people get saved. You love them into the kingdom. Not out of ulterior motive, but because you actually know that the best thing for them is to meet Jesus personally, not just through me, but themselves. So we love, first of all, out of obligation, That's the debt that you have, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And then in verse 11, down to the end of the chapter. Besides this, so besides the fact that love fulfills the law, etc., you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then... Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The first reason to walk in love was obligation, You are owed and commanded by the Lord to fulfill the law through love. But the second one is urgency. Urgency. Our time is short. We're running out of time to love people well. And he uses this illustration of daybreak. I think you can see that. He says salvation is nearer to us now. So wake up. The hour has come. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. It's time to get up and get dressed. Cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light and then live in the daytime. Live in the light of salvation. It's time to get up and get dressed and get going. He says, you know the time. This is an appeal to what is called the doctrine of imminence. Imminence. You know what it means for something to be imminent. It's about to happen, right? If if, if somebody's arrival is imminent, it means they said they were going to be here now, and they're not here yet, but they'll be here any second. Maybe you're cleaning the house. They said they were going to be over at 530, and now it's 530, and they're not here yet, so okay, let's try to scrub this floor as fast as we can. Imminent. And the, Old, the New Testament shows the imminency that the church believed about the return of Jesus Christ. Of course, Jesus said when he left, I will be coming soon. I'll be coming suddenly. I'll be coming quickly. And you read throughout the New Testament, they believed Jesus was coming very soon. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says, I don't need to tell you about when Jesus is coming because you know it's going to be like a thief in the night. It's going to happen so fast, it's going to blow everybody's mind. It's going to come upon them like labor pains upon a pregnant woman. As in, you know it's coming soon, you don't know when, but once it starts, there's no going back imminence. Jesus could come back at any time. The formal definition, there is no necessary intervening sign that must take place before the rapture of the church. This is important to know as as prophecy students and as students of the word, nothing has to happen for Jesus to come back, which is kind of important to know. We don't need a temple to be built. We don't need there to be a worldwide government. We don't need any of that for Jesus to return. The Lord will sort it out in his good time when Christ returns. And so this is why when people say things like, this, the signs are finally coming together. The rapture is a signless event. It's like a thief in the night. It happens suddenly and everybody's going to say, peace and safety and security, and then it's going to grab them. So, can we see things may, that maybe kind of line up in line with what Revelation or something says? Like, boy, it sure seems like everything is a lot more possible now than it was a hundred years ago. Yes, but it's not the same thing as saying this must happen or it must take place. Now, of course, there are many, even in the church, who doubt, number one, that Jesus is coming back at all. Number two, that if he is, that it could happen at any time. Most often people will say, Christians have been saying that since the very beginning, that Jesus is coming back, He's coming soon, you gotta watch out. We got all excited about the rapture, and then it didn't happen. I, I just I, I don't believe you anymore. Did you know that the Bible actually addressed that? Like immediately in the first century, the apostles knew about that? Second Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, written in like the 60s A.D. He said, do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. It's like if your mom tells you, just wait till your father gets home. And you wait, and it's, it's been like 20, 30 minutes. That's not coming back. I'm never going to be punished for what I did. He'll never be here. And then you hear him rolling up the driveway, and it catches you by surprise. But you took so long. He's like, well, that's, that's long for you, because you're a child. I'm an adult. I waited. And then he gets home, and he, oh, he hasn't said anything yet. Maybe I'm not going to get punished. no. He's just waiting to see if you're sorry. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works done on it will be exposed. Peter says, people are going to come. I'm telling you now, they're going to scoff. And they're going to say, he's never coming back. He says, the Lord is patient. So you must be patient, therefore. But the whole lesson is the same. He could come back at any time. And if they, according to Hebrews 1 and Acts chapter 2 and other places, if they said they were living in the last days then, brothers and sisters, we're living in like the last minutes now. It's like the end of a soccer game. Time has expired, but it's up to the referee's discretion when to end the game. Very frustrating thing if you like American football, but there you go. This means two things according to Paul's passage here. Number one, our salvation draweth nigh, praise the Lord, Your vindication is coming. All injustice will be punished and the world will be set to rights. But number two, we ought to wake up and get right. If the writing's on the wall and you know what the writing means, don't get back to what you were doing before because you're content to know like Belshazzar. It's a foolish thing. Say, okay, what do I do? And it is unfortunate, and this is not the case in every case, but it seems very often that prophecy enthusiasts rarely emphasize the need to live righteously as the response to that doctrine. Very much more often you hear, so we've got to stand and shout, and we've got to be mean online to people that are not saved, and you know, we've got to vote this way, and there's all kinds of political and social solutions, but very rarely is the solution, since the rapture could come, Love people. Now, is there a place for some of those other things? Sure. But Paul in this passage says, if we know that Jesus could come back at any time and the elements will melt with a fervent heat and Christ will come riding on the clouds, love one another. That's how the apostle saw it. Cast off the works of darkness. The bedclothes. That's kind of the example, right? If it's the morning time, it's time to get up, take off your PJs and get dressed for work. So what are these works of darkness that we've got to throw off? And he gives three pairs of sin here. He lists six things, but they're in pairs. So there's three of them. And and all of them you can see, in keeping with this metaphor of nighttime and daytime, these are all sins that are typically done at night. Things that you do when, you know, the sun goes down and now it's time to party. First one, he says, orgies and drunkenness. Now don't think in this context as an orgy as a sexual orgy, which is how that word is often used today. This is meaning wild parties, drunkenness, inebriation. Might add getting high to that, because some people for some reason want to distinguish getting high from getting drunk, even though the Bible, the point is not alcohol. The point is don't do anything that's going to dull your senses so that you're unable to make a right decision in the moment. Orgies and drunkenness, those things debase a man. Going out and having a good time and getting wasted and Doing things you can't even remember the next day, and then you see the pictures, hear the stories, and you're all embarrassed and ashamed. Don't do that. That's the work of darkness. You don't do that in the daytime. See some guy doing that in the daytime, you're like, that guy's got a problem. I mean, I do it, but I wait until the sun goes down like a decent human being. It leaves you feeling hollow at the end, doesn't it? You're done, and you wake up, and your head hurts, and you're thinking back on it, and you're like, what is wrong with me? Why, why, why am I doing this? And you look yourself in the mirror and say, all right, we're not doing this again. Knowing full well you're going to do it again. Paul says, those are pajamas. <laughs> those, are, those are the works of darkness. It's time to move on. To grow up. The second set is sexual immorality and sensuality. Now, sexual immorality is, is that word pornea. It encompasses any of those, those sins that we're familiar with. But sensuality is related to that. But it, that that's such a good pairing because it explains one of the main reasons why sexual immorality is such a problem. Because you're taking something that is holy and beautiful and created by God, which is sexual intercourse, and you are reducing it down only to sensuality. It makes me feel good. Is that part of sexuality? Yes. But if you reduce it down to that, you have stripped everything that is beautiful and wonderful and spiritual about it. Adultery. Oh, we're just so passionately in love. Well, what about the person that you married? You're not, you're, don't, don't tell me this is about love. This is about carnality, sensuality. My hormones are going crazy and I've got to do something with it. No, you don't. Homosexuality, same thing. Well, we love each other. No, this is perverted desire, the Bible says. Well, how do you know? Because look at the body God gave you. This is how God made you. And this is how God intended you to exercise that. And it's, well, I have this desire. Then it's a wrong desire. You know, you can have those, right? Pornography, it's the same thing. I mean, that's probably the ultimate example of reducing sexuality and all of its wonderful Song of Solomon, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 beauty, and stripping it down to... Something like going to a drive-thru. Same thing. I mean, that's, that's the same kind of thing. You can apply this beyond sexuality, although that's where Paul applies it. Making something beautiful physical only. So what kind of strips the romance out of it. No, it doesn't. It puts it back in, doesn't it? We're going to do this not because I'm in the mood, but because I love you so much. I'm willing to prevent you from being tempted to go somewhere else kind of have very young adolescent ideas about sex, don't we? Just culturally, right? It's like we, you kind of, we, we learn what it is when we're 14, 15, 16. When it's like, that, that's when you understand the least about these kinds of things. And like, you, it's, it's real when it's for you as you grow up when it's like that. But no, no, no. You didn't know anything about that when you were then. Don't you know a little something more about what sexuality is once you've been married for a while? He's re- like, well, this is not what I thought it was, but it's still something good and it's still something wonderful. It binds you together as husband and wife. So Paul says, don't treat it like something you do on the weekends in order to have fun. Well, I'm not married. I can... Don't, don't get into that. That's a great way to pile up a lot of baggage for when you get married. Number third, three is quarreling and jealousy. So we're, we're having a wild night on the town. We're getting drunk. We're having sex. And... Uh, I need to have a good fight with somebody. That's how you know it's been a good weekend. You know, I got drunk, I had sex, and I beat somebody up. That's a good weekend. That's a pugnacious spirit. I love that word. We've got to bring it back, pugnacious. That means you're spoiling for a fight. You ever know somebody that you kind of feel like they're, they're trying to fight with you? It's like, yeah, I think this guy wants to fight. Like we, I didn't do anything, but he's kind of, he's kind of coming at me. That's called being pugnacious, having a chip on your shoulder, ready to fight. And a lot of times what people will do, and it's not a guy thing only, ladies, by the way. Yours might look a little different, but it's the same thing. Quarreling is in there too, right? It's, 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 I'm trying to demonstrate that I'm in control. I'm trying to demonstrate that I can control somebody else. I'm trying to demonstrate a masculinity that I don't actually possess. Is it a manly thing to be able to defend yourself and defend your family and defend your country? Yeah, it sure is. But if you've got to go around looking for quarrels and fighting over stupid stuff, that that doesn't show that you're in control. It shows that you're out of control. It shows that you have no self-possession. It shows that you're not actually what you're trying to look like. So these three things. I mean, this is kind of, this is the wild weekend, right? These are the Las Vegas sins of the Bible here. We're going to get drunk. We're going to have sex. We're going to have a fight. Paul says those are the works of darkness. Put them off and move on from them. It's not, oh, it's just a part of growing up. Kids are going off to school. I know they're going to probably do some things. No way. That's, that's, that's defying Christ. That's living life like Jesus will never return. And can I say also, people will say, well, it's unfair to ask our children to live this way. I lived that way. My wife lived that way. Other friends that we have lived that way. Is there forgiveness for all these things? Yeah, sure. But we also should hold ourselves and our children to a high standard You can do this because the Holy Spirit of God will abide within you and lead you on and empower you to do this. And also, as you grow up, okay, maybe you had a wild youth. Lots of people did. The Bible talks specifically about God forgiving the sins of your youth. But have you moved on mentally from that? Have you moved on mentally and acknowledged that was not a good way to live? Or are you kind of nostalgic for those days? It's one thing to be nostalgic for good times and good friends. It's another thing to be nostalgic for the things you were doing during those times you got to grow up a little bit. 1 John 2.28, speaking of the return of the Lord, he says, Now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. He says, Live your life in such a way so that if Jesus were to come back now, you'd be excited. Can you look back on something that you did this week and you're like, I'm so glad Jesus did not come back at that moment. That would not have been good. My children, usually when I come home, they all come running to say, Dad is home, and give him a hug and a kiss. If one of them doesn't come, (laughs) something's up. Either they're playing video games and they didn't hear the door, or, number two, somebody's in trouble. Sometimes the converse is true, by the way. If they run up and they're being a little too huggy-kissy, that's because they did something. (laughs) And Mama's like, wait till Dad gets home. And they go, I'm going to butter Dad up so that he doesn't, oh, I can't get you in trouble today. They don't know me. (laughs) Have confidence. When Jesus comes and you hear the trumpet sound, don't you want to just be like, yes, let's go, Lord. Let's go home. Or do you want to go, oh, not now. Please not now. Not while I'm doing this. Do you want to get raptured drunk? I don't want to get raptured drunk. Do you want to get raptured when you're flirting with somebody that's not your husband or not your wife? You wanna get raptured stealing something? You wanna get raptured in a weird, stupid fight with somebody? Standing over somebody with their blood on your knuckles, and the rapture happens? Oh Lord. And that, that's when you get to heaven, you're trying to like stand behind somebody. You know? That's what John says. Don't shrink from him in shame. Live your life in such a way that you can be confident when Jesus returns. And the way you do that is putting off the works of darkness. Wake up. That's what Paul says, right? And put on love. Put on, he says, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're using the illustration, remember, of getting up, taking off your pajamas, and putting on the armor for the day. And then Paul says, and that armor is the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh, verse 14. To put him on like a garment. That means to step into his shoes, as it were. And walk as he walked, and live as he lived, and speak as he spoke. Make no provision for the flesh. You say, I can't put on Jesus Christ. He was Jesus. He was Jesus. I'm not Jesus. He was perfect. He was holy. He kind of floated when he walked. And he had one of those halos. And I can't do that. Jesus was made, according to Philippians 2, into the likeness of sinful flesh. He did not sin, but he was put in the same kind of body that you are. He became a man. He didn't just put on humanity as a costume. He became a man. It's called the hypostatic union. He took the substance of a man in addition to the substance of God and lived as a man among us, which means Jesus knows full well what it feels like to be tempted by sin. The Bible says he was tested as we are in every respect, although without sin. That's the only difference. Jesus was brought up to the terrible, agonizing depths of every temptation you've ever had, but he resisted. Well, yeah, he was Jesus. Slow down. He was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Are you not also filled with that same Holy Spirit? We talked about this in Romans 6, 7, and 8. You don't have to sin anymore. Yes, you're constantly going to have the temptation, but you don't have to sin. Your flesh, your body, right? Your carne, we've talked about that. Your body is full of sin, but your soul has been redeemed. And he says, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Just because you have an urge does not mean you have to fulfill it. That's, that's important to know, isn't it? And we kind of know that in most areas. And then we'll have one or two where we're like, but I have to. You know, we do this with sex. Well, I really want this sexually. So that must be who I am sexually. God says, no, you don't do that with anything else. And people that that do everything their body tells them to do, we have to lock them up because he said, we can't let you be around other people because you're going to hurt somebody. Make no provision for your flesh. That means if you know that you're having a hard time in this area, don't put yourself in a position where it's easy to fulfill it. If you know that when you go out with the boys, you're going to get loaded, don't go out with the boys. So y'all can come here. We can go somewhere else, but we're not going to go there because I know what happens there. Well, I'll go and I'll resist. Yeah, sure you will. Like you did the first 150 times. Well, they might not, they might be offended. Yeah, maybe. Well, what's more important? What's more important? Is obedience to Jesus Christ. Doing the right thing is more important. Don't give yourself an opportunity. If you know that you're married and you're in love with your wife, but there's just, there's just some sparks between you and that girl, that woman at work, and you haven't done anything, and she hasn't done anything, but when your eyes meet, you can just kind of tell there's something there. Well, don't go and hang around her desk. I'm going to put you two on this project together. <laughs> Sir, I don't think that's a good idea. I don't think we should be working together that much. Can you bring somebody else on? Have a, if you're going to have a meeting, keep the door open. Hey, you want to grab lunch? No, thank you. Well, she'll think I'm rude. Okay, your wife will love you for it. How was work? Well, I was kind of mean to this girl. I kind of felt like she was trying to flirt with me, and, you know, I, so I kind of had to kind of be gruff and mean. She's going to grab you and kiss you full on the mouth if you do that. Make no provision for the flesh. If you know that you and that guy always get into it, if you know that when that neighbor's outside, he's going to say something to you to make you mad, and you're going to get angry, and you're going to yell and cuss and maybe throw a punch, if he's outside, don't go outside. Or if you see him and you've got to go to your car, put your headphones in and don't listen to him. Let him holler. Let her holler. Don't give yourself any opportunity to do what you know you shouldn't. And he said, that's just going to totally transform my life. Yes, I know. Don't you want to live like Jesus did? Consider how Jesus did. Everything Jesus did was out in the open. He didn't have to hide anything. Just think for one minute. Just close your eyes and think what if I didn't have to hide anything? I didn't have to lie about anything. I didn't have to cover up anything. Wouldn't that be nice? Jesus was confident in his conduct because he was doing it before God and not before men. So that even when people disapproved of him, Jesus could stand up with a strong jaw and look him dead in the eye. Because I'm doing what my father has said to do. He was fearless. He had nothing to hide. Don't you want to live that way? Maybe you say you live that way. Be honest with yourself. Do you? Or do you want people to think that you do? That's not the same thing. Jesus said in John 5:19, "Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Listen, if you're only doing what God does, you, you don't need to be ashamed. You can stand strong. but you've got to put off the sinful desires and put on Jesus Christ, most importantly, love." Pastor John Lawrence at the conference yesterday from Jonesboro, Arkansas, "Like Father, like son." That's how Jesus lived, and we are the adopted sons and daughters of Jesus of God, are we not? Romans 8, like father, like son, like father, like daughter. Living bravely with God's approval. So what does that mean you've got to do? You've got to find out what God has said to do. Read that Bible in your lap. If you don't have one, there's one under the seat. Take it home. It's yours now. Just read it. Find out what God has said and do that. Find good examples in this church. There's a bunch of them. And say, I'm going to start doing it the way he does it. Or do it the way she does it. Find an example to follow. And then get on your knees. Pray hard. Let the Holy Spirit pull things out that you haven't maybe thought about. And then do them. And above everything else, as Colossians 3.14 says, above all else, put on love. The defining characteristic of who Jesus is. 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. Isn't that remarkable? Put on love. One of the favorite songs I, I used to hear when I was growing up when I was a kid, my mom used to listen to this CD from Crystal Lewis all the time. I don't know if you know who that is. But she had a song called, People Get Ready, Jesus is Coming. It's a great song. You should go look it up. People Get Ready, Jesus is Coming. Say, all right, how do we get ready? You put on love. If the writing's on the wall and you know the end is near, what do we do? We love people. I love studying end times so much. It's made me such a more loving, kind person. That's what it should be. And the world is ignoring the warnings. You know, I've I've realized this. I'm I'm going to stop saying things like the church has not stood up and spoken out against the the culture. Because we have. You see things and it's like, this is, isn't this exactly what Adrian Rogers said 50 years ago? Is that exactly what Tozer warned us about? Isn't that exactly what this guy? And you go all the way through. It's not that the church isn't speaking. People aren't listening, which is what Jesus said would happen, right? It's important to note that. Every generation thinks there's the only one that, that gets it. But the end is still near. And we cannot become cynical in that and say, fine, pat it with you people. If you're not going to listen, you deserve everything you get. Is that the mission we've been sent on? Is that Jesus' attitude? You deserve everything you get? Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As they nailed him to a cross, we can't be cynical and we can't neglect the duty that God has given us. When I get raptured, should the Lord come during my lifetime, I don't want to be sitting around watching TV. Oh, good, you're here, Lord. Finally, I've been waiting. I want God to have to like grab me by the collar and say, come on, your time, time's up. Clock's, clock's run out, it's time to come home. But Lord, but there's one more person I can preach to. Uh, Lord, but what about these other people? Let's, let's write one more pamphlet and send it out for them to read. I want the Lord to have to grab me and say, all right, you were you laboring up until the last minute, the last second. You were loving these people desperately. Don't you want to be on your knees interceding for the lost when Jesus returns? Pour on the love. We've got to speak out. Yeah, but we speak the truth in what? Love. Some of us are real good at speaking the truth. But we don't love. And people know that. So they say things like, why would I listen to you? Lord, they've rejected your messenger. He goes, yeah, but I also didn't let Moses into the promised land because he struck the rock when I said, speak to the rock. You've got to preach hard truth, preach it with tears in your eyes, because if they don't get this, they're going to hell. You shouldn't have some weird, smug satisfaction about that. <laughs> now, you see, I was right. You say, I can't even watch. These people are going to be burning forever. And you've got good news. We're heralds of good news. Gospel means what? Good news. It's an old English word. You know that? Gospel, the first part, ga, is like good. Like goose good spell, and spell is like spiel. You, know, you go on your, on your big long spiel about something, it means message, it's an old word. So, gospel, good message, good news. Evangelion, good message. That's what we have. And it's a message that is always taught in love. First of all, because of our obligation to love our brothers and sisters, and also because of the urgency of the last days. Jesus said in John 9, and he uses actually the opposite illustration that Paul does of night and day, but he says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. I mean, this is going to come a day you're not going to get a chance to preach the gospel to that person anymore. You're not going to get another chance to be a missionary around the world. You're not going to get a chance to partner with the Discovery Club. You won't get a chance to come to the women's Bible study and disciple younger women in the faith. You're not going to get a chance to go to the prison and preach the gospel to those that are going to be there the rest of their lives. The night is coming when no one can work. Jesus said, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. But guess what? Jesus is not in the world anymore. So what else did he say? Who else is the light of the world? You are the light of the world. He's not in the world anymore, but you are. So it's your job to shine the light of Jesus Christ as long as you can, because a day is coming when you won't be able to anymore. And the way you shine it the most is through love. Love as defined not by the Beatles, not by some egghead in a university. Love as defined by our Lord Jesus Christ.